Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. The better title for my sermon today, well, let me look. The first one that I put on there is, You Aren't Peter Pan and This Isn't Neverland. But I was just playing around with the titles, and, the, and that one went, went to a publication before I changed it. The implications of that title is that Peter Pan, of course, was a character that was uh, content to live in Neverland and never grow up. Now, you might have a hint of where we're going in the book of Corinthians by that. I think the better title would have been A Matter of Maturity. And now you might understand a little bit more about where we're going and what Paul had to address to this Corinthian congregation. Let me start reading in the second chapter. Now, we do speak wisdom among the mature. And that's where we get the key point that Paul is going to start guiding his letter, his communication with the Corinthian church on a new subject matter. He's been talking to them about the problems they have with the division, but now he really gets down to the core issue. This is a matter of maturity or specifically lack thereof. So he says, we speak wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are perishing. Instead, we speak the wisdom of God, hidden in a mystery that God determined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it. If they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, so far, he's talking about the mystery of God, and what he's talking about is uh, the plan of salvation, the coming of the Messiah, the death on the cross, the resurrection, everything that purchased our salvation, that people who do not understand the things of God don't get it. They didn't even get it when Jesus came and actually did those things. Lived here on earth, ministered to them, went to the cross, rose from the dead, and people didn't get it. You know why? Because they were worldly, they were carnal, they were unspiritual, and spiritual people can get it. Unspiritual people don't even get it really when when it's right in their face. Now, the next thing he says is a passage of Scripture that has been oftentimes used in reference to heaven. And you see from the context as we read through this, Paul was not talking about heaven whatsoever in this passage. And why it gets used that way so often, I don't know. But here's the context of it. Just as it is written, things that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, or any mind has imagined are the things God has prepared for those who love Him. He's referring to the mysterious things. The mysterious things such as that plan of salvation that the prophets wrote about, but many still didn't understand it. Those are the mysteries of God. And the reference of this is to those wonderful things God has provided, like the plan of salvation, that is so far beyond anything you could possibly imagine. Yet a lot of people still don't get it. So God revealed these things, how? By His Spirit. We understand them simply because we come into a trusting faith-believing relationship with Jesus, and the Holy Spirit reveals these things to us that we could not see. It was impossible for us to see as long as we were saying, I don't want a relationship with God. I don't want anything to do with Jesus. 
And in that state, you're not going to understand the spiritual things that God has for us. You're not going to understand His spiritual truth. You're not, go- you're not going to comprehend the plan of salvation. You may acknowledge there is a God, but maybe it doesn't connect with you in the way that once you accept Christ as your Savior, how outstanding that love of God is for us. It becomes a revelation. You might have head knowledge of an old Sunday school song, Jesus loves me, this I know. But once you accept Jesus, you are overwhelmed by the reality of His love for us because those things are spiritually revealed to people who open themselves up to God. For who among men knows the things of a man except the man's spirit within him? So too, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now, We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things that are freely given to us by God. And we speak about those things, not the words taught us by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. The unbeliever does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. In other words, doesn't understand the spiritual mysteries that God has. The unbeliever can't receive it. Because to the believer, they are foolishness. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The one who is spiritual discerns all things, yet he himself is understood by no one. And then Paul concludes that part by saying, For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to advise him? But then he winds that up by saying, But we, who? The spiritual people. We have the mind of Christ, and the unbeliever does not have the mind of Christ. We who have the mind of Christ understand the spiritual things that God has for us, and we appreciate them. The unbeliever does not understand them and cannot appreciate them. Now, in this passage, Paul introduces the issue of maturity and contrasts spiritually mature people with unbelievers. Yet we will be moving into the third chapter of Corinthians where then he makes the application of this and contrasts spiritually mature believers to immature believers. And we'll get to that in just a few minutes. But let me deal, first of all, with this introduction of the concept of a maturity problem. The unmistakable theme that Paul has now entered into is one of maturity, physical maturity, is a biological process. If all of the biological things are working right in the body, the body will mature without you having to think about it. It just happens. It naturally matures with age. Physical maturity ushers us, like it or not, into the realm of adults. But physical development doesn't make everybody mature adults. Sometimes it just makes people big kids. And the tragedy is that physically fully developed adults sometimes have not grown out of their childhood. That is a tragedy. We've seen people like that. The emotional development that does require effort on your part did not keep up with the physical development which doesn't require anything on your part. Maturity and wisdom and spiritual development, as Paul is writing this, are inseparable. So Paul makes it clear 
that the foolish of the previous chapter are really the wise ones. In other words, how the world views the foolish people. And he says, well, the world thinks we're fools, but we're really the wise ones. We're really the mature ones. And the mature ones are really the spiritual ones. And the wise, mature, and spiritual ones are the only ones who are truly capable of grasping the wisdom of God. So the worldly person doesn't get it. Why? Because those things are spiritually discerned. So, in other words, somebody could come into church this morning or at any time, any Sunday, and they could leave totally confused about what's the big deal. They could maybe not understand why during the time of worship that some people are more emotionally involved in this, and they might say, I don't get it. I don't sense what's going on here. But it's because the spiritually mature understand what's going on, and those who have not made this commitment to God, are not able to plug in and sense their surroundings, what's going on. Here's three truths to keep in mind about spiritual maturity as we get into Paul's teaching. Number one, emotional maturity is tied directly to spiritual maturity. If we don't mature spiritually, there are many opportunities in many ways in which people can remain underdeveloped emotionally. Number two, only spiritual, spiritually mature people can understand the hidden mysteries of God, and these things are considered foolish by unbelievers. And number three, spiritually mature people tend to think like Christ. Now we have the mind of Christ. Now there's division in our nation. I, j I just want to pause and make an application of what Paul is saying about spiritually mature people compared to unbelievers who are not spiritual and not spiritually unmature and consequently are not emotionally mature because it's all tied to spiritual maturity. Look at the division in our nation. By and large, we're looking at a maturity issue. We are looking at a spiritual maturity issue, the reason we have such a large division. Now, I grew up in a Christian home. I'm grateful for that. I know many people did not grow up in a Christian home. You're in church today because you bucked the trend of your family. You stepped out away from what they were, and you chose to follow the Lord. And maybe to this day your family still doesn't follow the Lord. Maybe you're on a, a, a practically a solo mission in your family. But I grew up in a Christian home. I haven't known anything in my upbringing except God and church as far back as I can remember. Some come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ later in their life. I don't remember a time of not being, considering myself a Christian. I don't remember a time of not being saved. I mean, from the time I was a little, just as, as far back as my memory can take me, I had an awareness there is a God. I had an awareness that God cares about me and is interested in my actions. Those little uh, some of those uh, courses that we used to sing in Sunday school class, uh, they really burrowed down deep inside of me. I mean, like, be careful, little ears, what you hear. <laughs> or the, the next verse, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little hands, what you do. 
For the Father up above is looking down on you in love. So be careful what you see, what you do, what you hear. That haunted me. God was everywhere watching me. I couldn't get out of his sight. Yes, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not exaggerating. Everything that I could possibly think to do, there was a reminder there. Thank God for Sunday school. Be careful what your hands do. Your Father up above is watching. Be careful what you see. Your Father's watching you. Be careful what you hear. Your Father is watching you. See, it was, it was burned into me. But not everybody has had that advantage in their life. But the fact of the matter is, we should live our life with that awareness all the time. If we want to be Christians, if we want to follow God, we should have a daily keen awareness that God is watching what you do, what you see, what you say, what you speak, what you hear. He's watching. And that should govern our actions and our behavior. For those of you who have experienced a magnificent turnaround in your life, it's likely you can understand from my own experience how different your views are today from what they used to be. Those are interesting testimonies. See, I don't have a former life to compare to unless we get back before like three years old and if I were to say I was a rotten sinner before I came to the Lord, it's only because maybe I... I, I whined because somebody took my toy. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't have this rotten past. Uh, but, but those who have come to the Lord later in life, you have a contrast in your life. And I love those testimonies. That's the way I used to be because you didn't have the advantage of being raised uh, in a Christian home and the advantage of staying faithful to that uh, beginning, if that's what you had. So you have, a, you have a contrast. That was me before. This is me now. That's the way I used to be. This is the way I am now. That's the way I used to think about things back when I was in the world. But this is the way I think about them now that I'm following Jesus Christ. It's a transformation of your mind. Be not conformed to the world, but be you transformed through the renewing of your mind. It makes you think about things differently. Now you understand the love of God as being a very personal thing. You knew the crucifixion as a matter of historical account, but now you realize that He was crucified for you. He died for your sins. He died so you could make that transformation from what you used to be to what you are today. That's the provision that was made, and it means something to you personally. The unbeliever or the spiritually immature or the non-spiritual person, or if you have the King James Version and like that, the natural man, that's what the King James calls it. All of those are the same things. They don't have this abiding sense of God. And they don't have God as a reference point in their life. Now, having said all this, uh, may I use just a personal example? I don't use foul language. I never have. I know plenty of people do. I I read it on social media. I I, I hear it on television. I go out in public. You hear it. But the, the one thing that puzzles me is how people can do things that, that I think God cares about. I I think He cares very much about our conversation. I think it's very clear in His Word that He cares about how we talk and how we speak and how we represent Him. But the thing that puzzles me, coming from my specific background, is how people can do things like that uh, and, and, and talk filthy and have no reservation and no compunction whatsoever about what they're doing. It just 
flows in there like it's normal and natural. And if anybody has a problem with it, what's your problem? What's the big deal? And we are cultivating a society today that is getting more and more where it's no big deal. Sin's no big deal. It doesn't matter what you do. Things that we know are contrary to God's Word are becoming accepted and mainstreamed in our culture today. I don't understand that because it's not mainstream to me. I have questions about people who have self-destructive habits in their life, and I understand people who are struggling with self-destructive habits. I understand that. But I don't understand the people who are happy to be destroying themselves. They don't care. It's okay. They're just tearing themselves apart with their lifestyle, but that's okay because aren't we having fun? That part I don't get. I can understand struggling against things. I cannot understand being happy to be in bondage. I don't understand that. I wonder how people can expose their children to things I would consider inappropriate and have no twinge of shame or regret. I've known of parents who thought it was funny to give their child some alcohol and watch how it made them act stupid. I don't get that. I've known of parents who have thought it would be fun to give their child some marijuana. I've known that to happen, thought that would be funny. I don't get that. See, my brain doesn't wrap around that because I have God as a reference point that I understand these are things that don't please God. And so, for me, I know if it's offensive to God, it offends me. But there are people who don't have that reference point, and they do that without any qualms, without any, any compunction, without any guilt whatsoever. It's like they have no moral bearing to guide them in the decisions that they make. I remember when my wife and I were ministering in a children's outreach in another church, and... Uh, I had asked the children at one point where we would set, we, we, we opened up a basketball court and, and in, in our town and, and the children would just pack in there. We'd play basketball and do foosball and, and all kinds of activity, ping pong. And then we'd sit them down at halftime and, and have a, a halftime devotion with them. And I asked the children, anything we can help you pray about? And children are so honest, it's shocking sometimes, isn't it? And one little girl uh, came up to me after this had all taken place because it meant a lot to her that we cared. We wanted to pray. She says, uh, my daddy does drugs. Now, you know what? That'll tear your heart out. She knows. She doesn't quite understand how probably bad that is because it's something that had probably been normalized in her life. But nevertheless, there was enough there that she understood that that was probably not the best thing to do. So she comes up, my daddy does drugs. Do you want me to pray with you? Yes. So I, I prayed with her. But, you know, it breaks my heart to hear this little child come up where she's raised in a home that that is so casual. That's okay. It's open before the children. This, that's just the way adults do. You can't do it yet because you're not adult. But when you get to be an adult, this would be a good lifestyle for you. See, I don't get that. I don't understand that. So we're living in this unique day and age here in the United States. Our nation is just about divided down the middle on some very important moral issues. Now, we've always had an element of immorality in the United States. We've always had it in the world. We've never been a completely Christian nation. We've had Christian influence. 
But it's getting to where we are losing uh, the majority of people who have a, a God-centered reference point. And we've got about half the nation right now that does not reference their moral standards against the Bible or with reference to God. They're just kind of making it up as they go. Whatever the majority thinks, that's what's good and right. And I can give you just one example, because there's many, and I don't want to waste that much time on it in my sermon, just one example so you can understand what I'm talking about. Let's just take the example of the, the perversions, uh, the sexual perversions that are being openly embraced in our nation. It takes many different forms. One of those forms is transgenderism. Most of you understand what that term is. Uh, a man wants to become a woman, so he goes through a process to do that and becomes a woman, and vice versa, a woman be wants to become a man. Transgenderism. Uh, the freedom to choose whatever gender you want to be. And of course, from a godly viewpoint, from a biblical viewpoint, for a person who is spiritually mature, they look at that and say, there's, there's something totally wrong with this. But for anybody without a, a God-centered reference point, without a biblical-centered reference point, they probably will adopt a position that says, what's the big deal? As long as they're not hurting you, what's the big deal? Uh, well, it, it's a question of how much impact do these things have on society. For people with a God-centered uh, reference point and a biblical reference point, they realize that the moral fiber of a nation is vital to the survival of that nation. They realize that, that you cannot just let the morals go to pot just because everybody's happy to do their own thing because it has its eventual impact on our society. It impacts the family. The family impacts the nation, impacts the church. There's this concept in libertarianism the no harm theory. As long as people want to do whatever they want to do and there's no harm to you, it's okay. Well, the libertarian thought, the problem with the libertarian thought on that is they do not follow through where the true harm happens. They just assume that if you're not immediately being clobbered over the head, there's no harm to you. But they don't see the far-reaching effects of the deterioration of the moral standards in a nation. And that does destroy a nation. Empires have fallen because there was no moral standard that was adhered to. Until finally the corruption just caused the entire empire to collapse. And there's no convincing some people until after the game's over, until the nation has collapsed. We are weakening our foundation because we're lacking the kind of moral reference point to God and His Word that we need to sustain a healthy society. Who would have ever thought 10 years, even 10 years ago, who would ever thought that a former decathlon champion would decide it would be a fun thing to go take hormone shots, grow his hair and nails out, wear dresses, and call himself a, a woman, and get voted Woman of the Year by Glamour Magazine? Who would have thought? Now, you've always had a few people running around that were experimenting with risque things and, and sexual experimentation. But to get to the point where in a nation that has become popular and embraced and voted as the woman of the year is telling me that we are now getting in a nation that is starkly divided on moral issues. It's a dangerous place to be. Morally, America is, is losing her way. The immoral elements that used to be just marginal behaviors are becoming mainstream, divisive issues in our nation. 
This is nothing but spiritual immaturity. That's what Paul was talking about. Spiritually mature people can see the problem. People who are spiritually immature or the unbeliever, as you're talking about, don't see a problem here. And you will not win the argument with them by debate. You know why? Because spiritual things are spiritually discerned. You won't convince them, you won't convert them by arguing the point. The only thing you can do is find a way evangelically to introduce them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ so they have the same revelation of godly values that you have. It's the only way to change the nation. What's the bottom line? We need a Holy Spirit revival that would sweep through our nations and pull the scales off the eye of the blind and bring them back to a God-centric lifestyle and a God-centric nation. Now, on that note, Paul now moves to chapter 3, and he takes this concept of spiritual maturity and takes it from spiritually mature people versus the unbeliever in the world and moves it into the church because he has to apply this to the Corinthian church. He just didn't write to talk to them about the world. He's writing to talk to them about the church's problems. So here's where he makes the application. And he says, now, in the same way that spiritually mature people see and understand things that spiritually immature people or underdeveloped people or carnal people or worldly people never see, he said, in the same way, you have spiritual people in the church that understand things that spiritually immature people in the church cannot see. So he's zeroing in on the problem with the Corinthian church. So, brothers and sisters, he says, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but instead as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, right there, if you don't understand the impact of what he's just said, he just told the Corinthian congregation, you big bunch of babies. This would not have gone over well in a sermon in person, but he writes the letter from a safe distance and literally says, you're just a bunch of babies. He said, I fed you milk and not solid food because you weren't ready. What's he referring to? That time that we read in the book of Acts when he went to Corinth and he evangelized there. He did a mission work there. He didn't go in there and try and teach him the deeper things of Christianity. What he did is went in there and just preached the cross. The cross was milk. It's fundamental. It's vital. You have to have that message. But he didn't go beyond Jesus Christ and the cross. But he said, I fed you milk. That's all you could stand. You didn't even know God. You didn't care anything about living for God. But I gave you the fundamental message. Jesus Christ died on the cross to save you from your sins. That's all you could handle. But he says, now, five years later, he said, I can't teach you the things that I should be teaching you because you still can't receive them. In other words, you haven't grown. Since the day you gave your heart and life to Jesus Christ, you haven't grown to where I can feed you some meat now. You're still needing milk, and that's a problem. He said, in fact, you're still not ready. You are still influenced by the flesh. For since there is still jealousy and dissension among you, are you not influenced by the flesh and behaving like unregenerate people? In other words, he says, you're behaving just like the unsaved people in what you're doing. For whenever someone says, I'm with Paul or I'm with Apollos, you're just being merely carnal, merely human, acting like the world. So the spiritual people in chapter 2 are the same as the spiritual people in chapter 3, the spiritually mature, but the spiritually immature people of chapter 2 are the world, and the spiritually immature people of chapter 3 are in the church. In other words, 
How many of you have heard anybody talk, say the phrase, carnal Christian? Have you heard that? I don't know if you've developed your own theological response to that. One of the popular responses is it's a contradiction in terms. You cannot be carnal and be a Christian. But Paul differed. He said there are carnal Christians in this church. In other words, they understood enough about God to want to serve Him, to want to uh, accept Him as, as their Lord and Savior, as Jesus as the Lord and Savior. But they weren't developing, so he called them the carnal Christians. Now, if you stay in that state long enough, it probably will wreck your salvation. You just can't refuse to grow and continue to exist. You stop. If, if you're not growing, you're dying. <laughs> and, and eventually it's going to kill you. So now Paul goes back to the core issue in the first four chapters. And he's talking that this is the reason you've got so much division and problem in the church because you people haven't grown up yet. And when I say you people, I don't want you to get defensive because this is not my church. I'm not pastoring the church at Corinth. I'm pastoring the church at Westside that we have a, a lot of very good, solid, stable, uh, mature people here. And Paul says you're not strong enough for solid food. You've been on baby food way too long. And then he explains this charge against him. He said you're still influenced by the flesh. You're acting just like unregenerate people. Now, here's the chronology. Paul visited Corinth in about 50 or 51 A.D., and he wrote this letter in 55 A.D., so he was talking four years. You should have been a lot farther along than you are now. Will you give me the liberty of taking four years as maybe a, a, a valid uh, timetable for Christian development? Paul expected these people to be developed beyond what they were in four or five years of Christianity. How long have you been a Christian? And have you developed in, in proper perspective to the time that you've called yourself a Christian? Or like one man said years ago, I've never forgotten it, he says there's a difference between being a 20-year-old Christian or being a one-year-old Christian 20 times. In one, you're developing, you're growing. In the other, you just keep repeating the same thing over and over, but you're not getting anywhere. As a pastor, this is my heartbeat. This is what I'm trying to do as a pastor, not just to entertain you. I'm trying to, to, to prod you. I'm trying to urge you along. I'm trying to get you to grow. I, I'm trying to challenge you with, with sermons. I, I, I work my poor little heart out <laughs> trying to bring something to you that the Holy Spirit will apply to you, and you say, oh, me. I think I need to get with the program. I think I need to grow a little bit more. Uh, we've all got room to grow. I've got room to grow. Until the day I die, I'm expected to grow. I'm not going to plateau. I can't plateau. It's impossible in God. There's room to grow no matter how long you spend in the Lord. And I have to still grow. There's, have to, there's things I have to continue to work on in my life. And you as well. So we need to have maturity as a realistic goal in our life. I want to go beyond what I am today. If you just got saved, you really are looking forward to 20 years from now being where you are today? I hope not. You may have come into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ with a lot of baggage in your life. What we want you to do is begin to drop that, drop that baggage off on your journey so you don't carry it anymore. Some people are able to drop a lot of it at the very onset and lay it all down and say, I'm done with it. Some people drop, drop a bag off every once in a while until they're finally done with it. It doesn't matter as long as you keep dropping the baggage off, as long as you keep making progress, as long as you are growing. You may have come in with baggage of, of uh, uh, 
bondages in your life. Uh, you may have addictions in your life. What God wants you to do is continue to lay these things down until you overcome these things in Him. He wants you to grow. You may have come in with emotional uh, problems and challenges. You may have, have come in with a, with a horrible temper. Well, God will take you just like you are, but He's going to lead you on a path where He says, Son, we're going to grow you out of this. We're going to get you to the point where you have the mind of Christ and not the mind you grew up with. You've got to leave the old things behind and you've got to adopt the new life through the power of Jesus Christ. Carnal Christianity, that great dichotomy. The two concepts of carnal carnality and Christianity seem so completely contradictory that you would think they're mutually exclusive. But Paul, in Paul's mind, the carnal Christian is simply the person who philosophically embraces Christ. But in practice, they still continue to be driven by self-interest. You understand that? Part of the maturity process in, in Jesus is learning to crucify self and to live for God's interests. Less of me, more of Him. That's what growth is all about. The discipline of Christianity, by and large, entails crucifying the inordinate desires of the flesh and focusing on God's interest. And friend, you will never get to the point where that's not a battle in your life. You'll just face a new battle with the same kind of theme. You overcome the smaller things and you build your spiritual muscles and you get to a point in your life where you start thinking about things you never thought of before because they were too difficult for you to even comprehend at that point. You overcame the little things, but now God's coming down and saying, what about this? Well, I never thought it would come to this, God. Well, it'll come to it. If you grow, it'll come to it. And you begin to do more and more things to mature in Him because the Holy Spirit now brings to your mind something that you, as a mature Christian, at this stage in your life, really need to think about. Ten years ago, it was too early to think about it, but now it's time to think about this thing. That's called growth. And you've got people that resist this for various reasons. One of the reasons is because we don't like our maturity being questioned. It's kind of insulting. Most of you have had some dealings in this matter. You've possibly had to confront somebody who was acting very childish, and you called them out on it. Parents often have to do this with their children because children go through this transition. And children, young people, don't make a mistake. Every one of us adults went through it before you did. We were right where you are. We were doing stupider things than you do. It was difficult. We remember. We know what it is to go through that. I know you think we've been old for eternity, but we haven't. We were young. And we were awkward. And we were going through this molting stage where you are shedding that shell of your childhood and emerging into adulthood. And in successful molting, the shell comes off, the outer skin comes off, and this new creature emerges. If you don't successfully molt, you're still walking around an adult with the old childish shell still encasing your life. During this molting period, <laughs> this transition period, sometimes people 
slip back into their old habits and their old ways. They pout. They pull out the old tantrum. They make childish demands. They sulk. And you know, good parenting, good successful parenting is able to help pull that child through that transition from childhood into adulthood. And one of the worst things a young person hates to hear from their parents is for the parents to say, you are acting like a baby. They don't like that. When I was young, there was a period in my life where I looked forward to being an adult. I, adults had some freedoms. They, they had uh, acceptance. They had respect. You know, and for me, becoming an adult held so many hopeful things and positive things. Now that I'm there, I wonder what was wrong with me. Because there's a lot of responsibility that goes along with being an adult that I should have enjoyed my childhood while I had it. So I'm, look, I'm looking forward to being an adult. I just want to get to where I'm an adult and nobody tells me what I have to do. Boy, do you have a wake-up call. Where are you going to go and what kind of life are you going to live and where are you going to work that nobody tells you what to do? So dealing with children and reminding them, I, 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 you're acting like a baby. You are bumping into adulthood. It's time you start acting like an adult. You know what's worse? When you have to confront an adult, physically mature person because they're acting like a baby. This happens sometimes. Don't any of you husbands or wives dare glance to the side while I'm saying this. Keep, keep your... Keep your focus straight ahead. But once in a while, the wife has to address the husband or the husband has to address the wife and say, I'm shocked. You're acting like a little baby. Now, that doesn't go over very well. But somebody has to say that sometimes. And sometimes you get the response, you're acting like a baby. I am not. Because not everybody makes that successful passage into adulthood. Adult men are supposed to act responsibly. Adult Christians, mature Christians are supposed to act responsibly. Anytime you've got a rift in the church going on with multiple people, there's a maturity problem here. Now, I interim pastored a couple little churches before I came up here just to keep my hands busy, keep my mind occupied. And we needed a sabbatical. We needed some time off. Ann and I were burnt to a crisp. But I know I just didn't want to completely get out of this. So pastoring a little tiny church was fairly easy for a seasoned pastor. I could do this. I could, I could preach. I could minister. I could love the people. But there wasn't a lot of burden that went along with it. Uh, so in one of these little churches, they had an immaturity problem in that congregation. Do you know, realize that something like that kind of spreads like a cancer? It grows. And here's a couple of examples I just want to share with you. Some of you have been with me for a while. You've heard these, but many of you have not heard this. One of the examples was there was a man in this church that I did not get to see him do this, but I saw him do plenty of immature things while I was there. And they said, well, that's nothing. You ought to see what he did before you came. 
he was staging his own personal protest over something that was bothering him. I don't know what it was. But he got out from his pew. He sat down in the center aisle, cross-legged, crossed his arms, and sitting there with his arms crossed, legs crossed, and sat there in defiance that entire service. Now, is everybody in agreement that's a little bit childish? <laughs> May I say at this point, as I just interject, if you've got a problem and you think you're going to sit in the center aisle, cross-legged, and cross your arms, you're probably not going to get satisfaction. It won't work to resolve your problem. We're going to have to take a different tack on this. The second example in this same little church was the slab was just about an inch above grade. So when they had a heavy rain, rain came in under the sills and flooded the church and, and made the carpet wet. And the church smelled mildewy and moldy because of this ongoing problem. Finally, a couple men on the board said, uh, Pastor, we would like to fix this problem this Saturday. I said, go for it. So they came in on a Saturday. They pulled out all the shrubbery that was on the side of the church where the problem was, dug the hole, put a French drain in, and solved this problem so that it would drain the water away. And when Sunday came the next day, I, I walked into church, and uh, the work had been done. I, I, I applauded the, the men who had the fortitude to get together and do the work. But there was an elderly lady who was a virtual matriarch. She was respected by all and held in high revere by everybody in that church. And she was sitting on a pew with her arm resting on the pew in front of her and her head resting on her arm. I thought the lady was perhaps sick, maybe having a heart attack. I'm concerned about that when you see an older person kind of in that condition. Are you all right, you know? So I went over and I said, are you okay? She said, I am sick in my heart. Well, now I'm thinking heart attack. I said, is there something we can do? What, you, your heart hurting? Are you having, no, no, I'm just sick in my heart. Well, what do you mean sick in your heart? She said, somebody ripped out all the shrubbery in front of her church. And I'm just sick. And she spent that entire service depressed. Couldn't get in touch with God, couldn't worship, couldn't do anything because somebody had ripped up the shrubbery. I said, you do understand that they were solving the uh, flooding problem doesn't make any difference. They didn't ask. Now, her son showed up to church the same morning, saw what happened in front of the church, turned around, went home livid, refused to come to church. I saw that immaturity was a spreading contagion in that congregation, that people got away with acting like little children and other people let them do that. It's a horrible problem to get started in any organization anywhere. But God expects more of us than that kind of behavior. We don't want to let immaturity have a contagious hold. Not in our church. Not in any church. So, you know, between the squatter and the squawker and the boycotter, this church had problems I didn't think I was going to be able to solve in six months of I'll hand this off to the next pastor and let him deal with these mere infants. But, Paul said, but we have the mind of Christ. And the question is, do you? You should, you're supposed to, but do you have the mind of Christ? Not that we're literally infused with all of his knowledge and his perfect wisdom, but that we're learning to think like Jesus thinks. We're learning to emulate his behavior. We're learning to adopt his standards. 
And Christian literally means Christ-like. And I think we use the term too loosely sometimes. Christianity means head knowledge and assent that there must be a God somewhere. And I have heard that His Son died on the cross, and that's okay with me. I'm a Christian. My grandma goes to church. I'm a Christian. But Christian is conduct. Does it roll over into your lifestyle? If you have the mind of Christ, your conduct is changing more and more into God's character all the time. You're going to be driven by or led by the Holy Spirit, not driven by your carnal appetites and urges. You'll conduct yourself like an adult. You'll act responsibly. You'll faithfully fulfill your duties as a child of God, first of all. You'll fulfill your duties, if applicable, as a husband, as a wife, as a father, as a mother, as a contributing member of a family, as an employee, as an employer, as a citizen, as a church member. You will fulfill your duties because you have the mind of Christ. I have reached adulthood. I've accepted responsibilities of adulthood. And probably the one thing that anybody could say to me that would hurt my feelings as much as anything is you just don't have the maturity to whatever. You're just, you're just a big baby. That would, that would really destroy everything I've tried to work for as a Christian man. I want to be respected as a responsible, mature adult. I think most of us want that respect. I want to exercise self-control like a mature person is expected to, because I don't want to be viewed as an immature baby. I, I don't want to be punching holes in the wall and kicking furniture apart and throwing man-sized tantrums because I want to be viewed with respect as a mature person. That's the reason I don't do those things. I want to be a faithful steward of my finances instead of being totally irresponsible with the money that has been blessed, I've been blessed with. Because why? I want to be respected and trusted by my family and by my wife for being a, a responsible, mature adult. I want my wife to respect my judgment. I want her to trust me. I want her to look at me and say, thank God I married a man and not a boy. I want that. I want my life to honor and glorify God. I want to make wise choices. I want to treat my wife with dignity and respect like an adult and a mature man would do. I want to be a godly model for my children and my grandchildren because they're watching me all the time. I want them to feel safe that wherever I go, they can safely go. I want to be a Sensible. I want to be sober. I want to be wise. I want to be rational. I don't want to look and act like a fool. And if I'm going to accomplish any of that, I need the mind of Christ. We all need the mind of Christ. Maturity was such a huge issue with Paul. He wrote about it time and again in his letters. It was always about maturity. It was always about growing up. And in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, later on to this same church in that famous love chapter, you remember what Paul said? He said, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I thought as a child, and I understood as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. You can put that in the feminine. When I became a woman, I put away the childish things of my youth. And that's where Paul was trying to lead those he was in charge of. God calls us to maturity. Do you understand that? 
He calls us to salvation, but the very next thing He calls us to is maturity. And Paul writes about growing into the full stature of Jesus Christ. It's our calling. After getting saved, we are expected by God to take every incremental step in growing up in Him and never stop growing. He wants His people, the people of the kingdom, to act like responsible adults. And here on earth, we know we will never be fully developed. We're going to be growing as long as we live. But if we quit growing, we start dying. Would you bow your heads?